I don't know about you, but I find that the story of Ruth is an incredible story. It's incredible in many ways. It's incredible in its design. It's incredible in its spiritual insight. It's incredibly relevant to our lives today because it shows us major theological truths. The first major theological truth that it shows, and we noted this last week, was that when you walk away from God's instruction, you walk away from God's blessing. This, of course, was the the life of Naomi. She had turned her life into a train wreck. She simply walked away from God's blessing. She made herself miserable, and she ended up making everybody else around her miserable as well. But of course, there was another side to that story. And the side to that story is the story of Boaz and Ruth, two people who followed God's instruction. And because they followed God's instruction, they enjoyed God's blessing. And in enjoying God's blessing, they literally brought heaven to earth. Heaven on earth around where they are. If you're with Ruth or you're with Boaz, good things are going to happen. Good things are going to come in your direction. And by the way, it was not just during their lifetime. They started things that lasted for three and four generations after them. Following God is always a good thing to do. And it's always, of course, a good story to tell. I don't know about you, but good stories can be told over and over and over and over. And that's true of the book of Ruth. But I think the way that was drilled home to my mind actually was in Russia, where Marguerite and I spent a few years and then went to Kazakhstan and spent another five years. So we have a bit of time in the former Soviet Union. And there, on New Year's, every New Year, the Russian people watch a movie called The Irony of Fate or Enjoy Your Bath. This movie is an incredible movie, only about eight characters. It's three hours long. You stay glued to the movie throughout the whole movie, even if you're working your way through with subtitles. That's how powerful the story is. Any person who had lived in Russia during the 1970s would watch that movie and remember the parodies that this movie shows about that society. The Book of Ruth is the same kind of story. It was read every year at the Feast of Pentecost. Every Israelite knew this story, and so it's a story worth repeating. And I want to repeat it for you and me this morning so that our minds are set in the right direction and that we are fully engaged in the text and in the context. We begin with Naomi's story. Naomi had a a good marriage. She married a good man, a man by the name of Elimelech. God is my king. Her name, of course, Naomi, means pleasant, 
And you can only imagine what kind of marriage it looked like they were going to have. God is my king, married to a pleasant woman. You can only expect that things are going to go up. They're going to look better. It should be a great situation. But exactly the opposite happens. And we're given clues in the text as to how it happened and why it happened. We're told, for example, that Naomi and Elimelech live in a town called Bethlehem, the house of food. But there's no food in the house of food. And then we're told that they decide to move to Moab. That is another clue that maybe things aren't going to go so well because they're leaving the land of promise and they are moving to the land of idolatry, immorality, and for that matter, enemy territory. While they're there, they make another choice, which is interesting for persons who should have been moving in a godly direction. They marry their sons to Moabite women. They violate the instructions in the book of Deuteronomy. And then we read the final death knell, and that's exactly what it is. Elimelech dies, Malin dies, Chilean dies, by the way, their son's names, sick and sad. Another clue to how bad things are going to get. Naomi's life is basically a train wreck. All because she walked away from God's instruction. And after she's walked away from God's instruction and all of these negative things have happened, what we see is her wallowing in self-pity. The only thing she can see is her misery, her sorrow, her loss. That's a shame. Because she can't see the blessing of God that is right near Ruth had said to her, Naomi, listen, don't urge me to leave you. Don't tell me to go back anymore because where you go, I'm going to go. And where you stay, I'm going to stay. And your people are going to be my people and your God is going to be my God. And where you die, I'm going to die. And where you're buried, I am going to be buried, so help me God. That's God's blessing in the middle of her despair, in the middle of her sorrow, in the middle of her pain. There is this incredible woman saying, I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. But Naomi can't even hear it. And she begins blaming God. The only one who can help her is the one that she blames. And so at the end of the chapter, her name is miserable. Her name is sad. Her name is bitter Mara. So we come to the beginning of chapter 2, the end of chapter 1. And the beginning of chapter 2 we are reminded of the fact there are some laws of God that are extremely important. 
God's law is always important. God's law is not to see if we can toe the line. God's law is to provide a context in which we can live and live to the fullest. And God in particular has a couple of laws that are mentioned here or at least are alluded to here that point you in the direction of seeing how God looks after his people. For example, we're told in the end of chapter 1 that it's harvest time. Ruth is going to end up in Israel just at harvest time. And God has laws about harvest. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 9, you don't harvest the corners of the field. You don't go back over the field a second time. You don't pick up the fruit that's fallen on the ground. You don't, you know, you don't pick all the grapes off the vine. You leave something. Why? So that the poor, the disenfranchised, the, those in society who have suffered grave issues will find a place to get food. You see, God's law is there to help them. And then we find a second thing mentioned. We're told that in Bethlehem, there is a relative, a relative by the name of Boaz. And we see that God also has a law about widows. If a woman dies, rather if a husband dies, and the woman is left behind, and she has no children, it is her husband's brother's obligation to marry her, to have children by her. And that first male child is to take his father's name. He will receive his father's inheritance. He will protect his father's name throughout Israel's history. These are important laws for protecting people. As we come to the book of Ruth today, and I'd like to just read this for you, over in the book of Ruth and in chapter 2 and verse 1, listen to this. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of, of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. The interesting thing about this text is whenever you read chapter 2 and verse 1 in different versions, they're all spelled out the same way. He's either a noble man, he is a rich man, he's a powerful man, he's an influential man. But I think that all of those emphases are wrong because they don't, in fact, highlight what the text highlights. See, what the text highlighted, and we noticed it last week, was that Boaz is a good and a godly man. And when I say that, we saw that in his greeting. He greets his workers with the Lord, bless you. And he's generous to a fault. He's generous to Ruth. He's generous to Naomi. He's generous to everybody in the text. And he is a spiritual man as well. He sees what God is doing, and he is committed to God's law to do what God wants him to do. In fact, the text says that he was a virtuous man. Kayil is the word that's used in the text. He was a man of virtue. And that's an important thing because ultimately, 
Ultimately, if Boaz is going to rescue Ruth, it will be not because he's powerful, not because he's influential, not because he's rich, but because he is good. That's the issue. And now, as we come to this third chapter today, there will be a focus on Ruth and a focus on her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then we'll see a number of things that take place. But let's come back to Ruth. Ruth has made great progress. And when I say great progress, she has moved from Moab to Bethlehem. She has moved from idolatry to worshiping Jehovah God. She has moved from Bethlehem to Boaz's field. As we read the text today, she'll move from Boaz's field into Boaz's threshing floor. And finally, next week we'll see that she moves from the threshing floor actually into Boaz's house. Her journey is an interesting one, and that journey to Boaz's house is not necessarily a slam dunk. It is not necessarily a done thing. See, while Boaz's name means quick or fast or whatever, when it comes to this issue of the marriage of Boaz to Ruth, it takes a lot longer than you think it should. He's not so quick in this decision. But things are going quite well for Ruth. Remember, it looks like Ruth is one lucky girl. She makes her way. She asks, can she go to anyone's field? But it just turns out, it just so happens, she ends up in Boaz's field. And then we read that it just so happens that Boaz's field is a safe field. And then it just so happens that while she's in the field, Boaz comes to the field. And then as she and Boaz are talking, you remember it's as if Boaz had been on the very road from Moab back to Bethlehem, that he heard exactly what Ruth had said. Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. And he says to her, listen, you can stay in my fields. You are now under the wings of God. You are under the wings of Jehovah. Psalm 91. God looking after his people. Now, as we come to the text before us today, chapter 3, strange things are happening. Ruth and Naomi are discussing how Ruth should prepare herself to go to the threshing floor of Boaz. She's to wash. 
She's to put on her best clothes. She's to put on her perfume. She is to make every possible preparation to make herself attractive and acceptable to this man, Boaz. She's to go to the threshing floor. And she is to wait until it's dark, to stay out of sight, to make sure that nobody sees her, but especially to make sure that she sees where Boaz is going to lay down. And in seeing where Boaz lays down, she marks the spot so that later in the evening when it is dark, she can make her way to that very spot. And there she is going to do something very interesting. She's going to lift the cover off his feet and she's going to lay down at his feet. Pretty seductive, right? But wait a second. Wait a second. I mean, obviously it's not the thing that we'd want to recommend to our daughters today, is it? What's going on here? kind of woman is Ruth really? Has she slipped back into Moabite ways? The text won't let you think that because in chapter 3 and verse 10, listen to what the writer says. Okay. It says this, the Lord bless you, my daughter. That's Boaz speaking. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after younger men, whether they're rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. In point of fact, nothing, nothing seductive, nothing sexual, nothing carnal is going to take place on that threshing floor for two simple reasons. One, Boaz is a virtuous man, and two, Ruth is a virtuous woman. You see, it's exactly the same word that is used for her, Kahil, is used for Boaz. And what's the chance of this? This word is only used four times in this way in the entire Old Testament. And two of those times... In the book of Ruth, we have a virtuous man and we have a virtuous woman. We don't need to know uh, or worry about what's taking place on that threshing floor because it is nothing untoward, nothing that would in any way tarnish either them as a human being or person. Okay. But the question then is, why is Ruth there? Okay. And the answer to that question is, there's a plan. Okay. At first, when you look at the plan, it looks like a, a soap opera. Okay. I mean, you have these two scheming women. And they have a target. His name is Boaz. And they are going to seek to entrap Boaz. Now, clearly, this isn't really the case. Okay? First of all, Boaz wants to be trapped. You don't need to set a trap. 
He wants to be trapped. But something else is actually happening in this text. And it's something that we need to think about. Their plan revolves around two things. It revolves around, if you will, uh, this whole matter of Boaz's character and, and his being a relative. And it revolves around Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. We want to go back through this again because you have to understand that when God said to Israel, listen, if you keep all of my laws and my commands and my decrees, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he says further in Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, you will live under my blessing. One of those blessings was for a person like Ruth, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Her husband has died. Naomi's husband has died. She's too old to remarry. Ruth's husband has died. Ruth is young enough to remarry. And they have biblical warrant for doing what they're doing. They have a promise. And the promise is that there would be a kinsman redeemer. There would be a relative who should marry Ruth, who should live with Ruth, who should have children with Ruth, and provide, if you will, for the continuation of Malan's name in Israel and for the property of Elimelech to pass on to his family in the future. All of these things are God's promises to these women. And here's what we need to do. We need to commend them on doing what we don't do. We have all sorts of promises in the Bible, what Peter calls divine promises for divine nature, great and precious promises. We have them, but we don't necessarily act on those things. And yet, in this situation, Naomi and Ruth are reading Deuteronomy 25 and saying, we have entitlements here. God has given us this promise and we're going to exercise that. In, in fact, Boaz will become the wing of God. Let me show you what I mean. As you come down in the text... Ruth is laying at Boaz's feet. Verse 8, chapter 3. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. Good question. And she said, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Huh. In other words, she pops the question. Boaz, are you going to marry me? Are you going to fulfill your covenant obligation? Now, remember... 
just as the author has used Kail to show that he is a virtuous man, Kail to show that she is a virtuous woman, he now uses the word wings for God, and now Ruth uses the word you have said God put his wing over me. Now, Boaz, you are God's wing for me. Are you going to put your wing over me? Are you going to fulfill God's law and God's command? That's what's happening in this text. And she's going to get what she wants. Boaz says, I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. But there's a problem in the text. When I say there's a problem in the text, here's the thing. And you have to wonder, how did Naomi miss this problem? Because while Boaz is a relative, he is not the closest relative. He is not the person who has the right to exercise this uh, position with regard to Ruth. There's somebody else that comes before him. And all of a sudden, you're meant to ask the question, what's going to happen now? I mean, you've been watching this love story materialize between Ruth and Boaz. You can feel the chemistry. You, you can see the attractions. You can see that they care for one another. And all of a sudden now, there's this huge obstacle to overcome. It's only a huge obstacle from a literary point of view of you because it sets up a theological point of view. If in fact Boaz gets to marry Ruth, it's not going to be because he's entitled to her. It's not going to be because of his power or his position or any of those things, it is going to be because he pursues it because he loves her. Now, I think this is interesting, and we need to keep our, our minds on this. Remember, Ruth is a person who needs to be redeemed. She needs to be bought. She, she needs to be rescued and who's going to do this? Now, I recognize there's nothing Western all about this. And when I talk about this woman being rescued or ransomed or redeemed or whatever you want to say, people say, that's sexist stuff. Women today don't need to be redeemed. They don't need to be rescued. They're, they're fine just by themselves. They can live alone. They can live very happily and on and on. The story goes. This story is about something much more than just a simple human story. This story is a picture. It is a theological picture. 
You see, 21 times alone in the book of Ruth, a Hebrew word, goel, is used. Redeemer, 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 redeemer. 21 times in four chapters. And here's the thing. 25% of the time that this word is used in the Old Testament, it is used in the book of Ruth. It is the whole focus of the book that there is a redeemer. It looks forward prophetically to Christ. And here's the thing. This Christ becomes human. It's the way the author of Philippians puts it, Paul. That he takes upon himself human flesh. He humbled himself and he became a man. Or according to the book of Hebrews, it was his deep desire to be made like his brothers and his sisters. He became human so that he could partake of their sufferings. So that he could be a, a sympathetic and, a, and an effective high priest. He didn't have to do that. He did not have to do that. He chose to do it. Why? Not because he's under obligation, but because he loves his children. And so he comes and he rescues them and he ransoms them and he frees them. He takes them from sin to righteousness. He takes them from the world to God. He takes them, if you will, from hell to heaven. And he does it because he loves them. That's what this third chapter is all about. It is an incredible picture on earth of a man rescuing a woman in his culture in the way he should rescue her as a picture of God through Christ rescuing us as human beings and setting us free so that we might, in fact, serve him. I wonder today whether you've ever come to Christ and asked him to rescue you. Whether you have ever asked him with his blood to redeem you because it is with the blood of Jesus Christ that we have been redeemed. He has paid the price for us. I wonder if you've ever asked him to redeem you to rescue you, to restore you, to make you right once again so that you can live and serve him. That's what God wants. It's incredible what God wants for you. The scripture says you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is what this text is all about.
This woman who begins in Moab, a sinner, a slave to sin, a nobody in Israel, a foreigner, a Moabitess, on and on the text goes, she becomes a child of God. She not only becomes a child of God, she influences everyone around her. And ultimately, because of her rescue and her ultimate love and obedience, she will be one of the women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. It's an incredible story. And because of her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, will be changed forever as well. And need I mention Boaz? I don't need to mention Boaz. May God give you the grace to set aside your pride, to set aside your self-sufficiency, and to recognize that God is not your problem, but God is your solution. God's law is made for your benefit, and God sends his son, a kinsman, a relative, a redeemer, to come and rescue you, set you free from sin, so that you might live the incredible life that he wants for you.